once again in Galatians chapter 3. I'm going to read, beginning in verse 15, our focus will be on verses 19 and 20. Uh, I think one of the hazards for me of the marquee, the overhead, is that uh, it says 19 through 22, and I realize, I typed that on Thursday, and by last night realized I had bit off more than I could chew. (laughs) So we're going to focus on verses 19 and 20 this morning. I'll begin at verse 15 to set the context. Brethren, I speak in terms of human relations. Even though it is only a man's covenant, yet when it has been ratified, no one sets it aside or adds conditions to it. Now the promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. He does not say, and to seeds, as referring to many, but rather to one, and to your seed, that is, Christ. What I'm saying is this, the law, which came 430 years later, does not invalidate a covenant previously ratified by God, so as to nullify the promise. For if the inheritance is based on law, it is no longer based on a promise. But God has granted it to Abraham by means of a promise. Why the law then? It was added because of transgressions. Having been ordained through angels by the agency of a mediator until the seed should come to whom the promise had been made. Now, a mediator is not for one party only, whereas God is only one. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? May it never be. For if a law had been given which was able to impart life, then righteousness would indeed have been based on law. But the scripture has shut up all men under sin, that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Let us pray. Father, indeed, I I do pray that we would all be able to sing this hymn that we have just sung, that it is well, it is well with my soul. That we see that all that you have done, we realize the things that you have given to us. We realize how good you are and how gracious you are and how merciful and we can truly say it is well with my soul. I pray that you would help us to understand these things, help us to have wisdom, again, not to build ourselves up, but to build up the church, to be servants of one another, to love one another and to serve you. We ask in Christ's name, amen. It was 30-something years ago uh, that I was asked by one of the small group leaders of this church to fill in for him on a Wednesday night. And I was quite uh, anxious about that evening. I was nervous uh, because I hadn't done that a lot. I think I was still trying to learn how to lead silent prayer. And we were at a house that I did not know. Um, I did not know the hostess very well. And so it was with some trepidation that I said, yes, I would do that. Unbeknownst to me, our hostess invited her neighbor, who was uh, professed to be a Christian, to join the small group. And as I opened the scriptures and pointed our group to the passage that the leader had said, this is what we're going to discuss, 
The man said, why are you going there? It was a New Testament book. I don't remember which one. I think it was Philippians. And he said, why, why are you going there? That's not for Christians. Um, there's only a few books in the Bible, six maybe, and he rattled them off so quickly that my head began to spin. He said, the, the Old Testament has nothing for believers, and it's only these few books in the New Testament, and so you can't go there. And I was so confused, I, I couldn't even remember 2 Timothy 3.16. All scripture is inspired, inspired by God and profitable. The rest of the evening in my memory is a blur, and I don't even remember if he stayed for any more of the discussion. When we hear someone like that denigrating any part of the Bible, it, it should make us kind of jolt. But think about the agitators, the Judaizers that we've been talking about in Galatia. They were Jewish Christians. They were Jews who had come to Christ, and they hear Paul saying things that probably sounded to their ears like that man sounded to my ears. That there's part of Scripture that you just can throw away now. I mean, there is, and there ought to be in us, even now, tension that we would feel because of what Paul says about the law. There, there is tension because on the one hand we read passages where it is definitely, unmistakably, a negative critique. But then we also read, sometimes in the same context, a passage that sounds very positive, a positive approach to the law. For example, Ephesians 2.15, Paul says, Christ abolished in his flesh the enmity which is the law of commandments contained in ordinances. And then you keep reading in Ephesians, and you get to chapter 6, and he says, Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and your mother, which is the first commandment, with a promise. He's quoting from the Ten Commandments. He is quoting from the Old Testament. And you could imagine that the Jewish believers were quite upset by these things. In 1 Corinthians chapter 7, we read in the same verse, Paul saying, and again, this would be jolting, circumcision is nothing, and uncircumcision is nothing, but what matters is the keeping of the commandments of God. Okay, but circumcision, is, isn't that not a commandment of God? Or here in Galatians chapter 4, he says, Tell me, who you who want to be under the law, do you not listen to the law? You want to be under the law, but do you know what it says? And I think that would be the question that he would have to us. Do you understand what the law says? He has already said in chapter 3, the things that we've looked at the last few weeks, the law is not the promise. He says, no one is justified by the law. The righteous are justified by faith alone. That's chapter 3, verse 11. In verse 17 that we looked at last week, the law does not invalidate the covenant so as to nullify the promise. The law and the promise are different. The law cannot render the promise inoperative, 
It cannot destroy it. It cannot replace it. The law does not cause the promise to lose its power. It cannot cause it to lose its grace. The law, on the one hand, means doing. The promise, on the other hand, tells us that it is all of God. So Paul argues against imposing the law on the Galatian believers because the promise belongs to an earlier era of salvation history. As he says in verse 17, the law came 430 years later. The promise was given first. But he also says in verse 18 that the law does not bring inheritance. It, it does not bring the blessing. It doesn't show us the glory of God in his grace. But you can just hear again the agitators, those who would oppose this view saying, wait a minute, Paul. Wait a minute. What about old Mo? What about the man Moses? He was a pretty important dude in the Old Testament, don't you think? He was the one who received the law and gave it to the people. And, and Paul anticipates that question by asking in this section two questions. Verse 19, why the law then? If I've said all this, that the law cannot nullify the promise, then, then why the law? And in verse 21, he says, is the law then contrary to the promises of God? And so we're going to take up the first of these two questions. They are related, and one helps us understand the other. But again, because of my limited ability and time, we're going to look at verse 19 and 20. Why then the law? In other words, does the law serve a purpose? And why would Paul go this route? Why would he go down this path? Well, Paul must show a coherent view of God's redemptive plan. He, he has used the Old Testament already in chapter 3, Leviticus and Deuteronomy. He, he's, he's gone back to those passages to build the logic of his argument, his polemic against those who would say that the Galatians must keep the law of Moses. So he's already established that he's going there. But he has to show how the law fits into God's redemptive plan. There are those who pointed out in their commentaries that Paul is no Marcionite. As far as I can understand, in the middle of the second century AD, there were those who rejected outright the, the Hebrew God. They, here is the evil God. Here is the God of wrath and the God of, 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 of fire and brimstone, if you will. And the New Testament shows a God of grace, a God of mercy. And they rejected, as far as I can understand, the entire Hebrew canon, the, all the Old Testament, in favor of the New Testament. But Paul has already used the Old Testament, and now he has to show how they fit together. There is one purpose. God is glorified in our salvation. 
But still, why the law? Well, I found an illustration which I am going to appropriate for my own uses here in Philip Ryken's book on Galatians. And I appreciate his illustrations because quite often he alludes to baseball, uh, which even though I do live in South Carolina, I still think is our national pastime. But he illustrates it by taking us back to the 1988 Chicago Cubs, still 80 years after World Series, so 80 years of frustration still at that time. In that year, the Cubs signed a veteran infielder to play third base, and his name was Vance Law. That same time, they brought up a player from their farm team to play first base, and that rookie's name was Mark Grace. So at the corners of the diamond in Wrigley Field, you had law and grace. So you can imagine, at that time, it would have been Harry Carey, perhaps, in the announcing booth. Hot shot to the hot corner at third base. Law goes to his right, scoops it up, fires across the diamond to grace. Law to grace. For those of you keeping score at home, 5-3, ground out. Now, what's the point? The point is that law and grace are on the same team, but they have different functions. They have different roles to play in salvation history. Paul says, why then the law? It was added because of transgressions having been ordained through angels by the agency of a mediator until the seed should come to whom the promise had been made. I will acknowledge that this verse is a very difficult verse. He brings in ideas of transgressions. He talks about a mediator, and then he says, but God is one. And there are those who say there are a myriad of translations to this verse. I have even read that one man said, just like in verse 17, there were 430 years between the promise and the law, there are 430 different possibilities for translating verse 19. But from the commentaries, I would like to distill this down to the possible meanings But I think it is very evident from the beginning when he said it was added or it was introduced because of transgressions. We find that the law has a definite beginning, but this verse also shows us that it has a definite end until the seed should come to whom the promise had been made. The possible meanings are of it was added because of transgressions, I think fall under two general categories. It could mean a reason, because of. The law was given because of transgressions. Perhaps you have read either of or in John Calvin's Institutes. Calvin has three uses of the law. And if you want to kind of boil them down, and I think 
Calvin uses this kind of language, but of the, the, in the three, there's the mirror, there's the curb, and there's the guide. And there are those who say this is Calvin's first usage of the law. It's, it's a mirror. It reveals to humans their sins. It reflects God's glory and righteousness in such a way that it illumines for humans their unrighteousness, their unholiness, their sinfulness. Because of sin would perhaps in that case mean to reveal sin. But it also could be under this idea of reason to deal with sin. And that could be dealt with either negatively or positively. Negatively by punishment. We see in the Old Testament law the punishments for various sins, do we not? But it also could be positive in that it would keep them in check. And that is Calvin's second use of the law is the curb. It would restrain sin. It would restrain evil by threats and punishments that the, the law would arrest them. It would cause people to stop and think. It would limit them. It would limit the danger of injustice, or it would be a remedy for sin by the establishment of the sacrifices. So it could be that Paul means a reason, because of, that it would reveal sin or deal with sin. But this phrase, it was added because of transgressions, can also be translated for the sake of. In other words, it's a goal. The goal of the law was because of transgressions. For the sake of sin. For the sake of causing sin or provoking sin. But I think the key word here is transgressions. Paul could have used the word that he's used in other places for sin, hamartia, but he didn't use that. The word here is really, the, it means transgressions. And what is a transgression? It is a conscious violation of a known law of God. In other words, what Paul seems to be saying here is that the goal of the law is for the sake of turning sin into transgressions. For people to understand that their sin is a conscious violation of a known law of God. And he's not thinking about the law leading to more sinning. And there, there are those who believe that, but I think what he's getting at is how the law makes sin become transgressions, become our understanding of who God is and what his righteousness and holiness is all about. I believe that it is linked with Romans 5, verse 20, when Paul says, the law came in that tr the transgression might increase. Not that there would be more sinning, but that people would be more conscious that you are sinning against a holy God. Which one of these it is, a reason 
or a goal, and it may be a combination of those, I think we can see Paul's meaning that the law is limited. In this verse, we see that it is limited in its function. It plays its role. It's on the team, but it is limited in that function. And it is limited for a time, even until the seed should come to whom the promise had been made. The law could not save, but it could show the great need of salvation. The law could not take away sin, but it was in force until the seed, the promised one, the Messiah could come, who came to save his people from their sins. And then we see, as one of the commentators has said, there is a further limitation, not only in function and in time to the law, but the law came third hand. He says in verse 19, having been ordained through angels by the agency of a mediator. It came from God through angels to Moses who gave it to the people third hand. Now when we read in the giving of the law, we don't see Moses referring to the angels until Deuteronomy 33 where he mentions the myriads of angels. But in the psalm that we read this morning, Psalm 68, David seems to allude to that, the myriads, the chariots of God that were present at Mount Sinai at the giving of the law. Stephen, in his only last sermon, when he is speaking to those who were accusing him before the high priest, the very last sentence that he says is, is those who accept the law as ordained through angels, and yet you do not believe it. The writer to the Hebrews says it is the word spoken through angels. It's not by the angels. It's not the angels giving the law. It is through the angels. They are instruments of God's giving the law. And there are those who say, you know, so therefore it's not good. And no, God gave it through the angels to Moses. It's still a divine law. It is still majestic. It is still holy. As Paul says in Romans 7, it is holy and righteous and good. It is. And it shows us that it is through the instrumentation here. And yet, and yet it is not directly from God like it was to Abraham. It was through the angels to Moses and then to the people. And so he says, it came by the hand of a mediator. Twenty-something times in the Old Testament we have that phrase, by the hand of Moses, through the one whom God chose to give the law to Israel. And he implies it here, I believe, in verse 20. Now a mediator is not for one party only, whereas God is one. Again, a very enigmatic kind of verse. Kind of, where did this come from, Paul? And yet you can see the idea of a mediator. What, what does that imply? It implies that it's not like the promise, 
where God gave it directly to Abraham, and it was very one-sided, right? He gave it to Abraham as a gift, as a promise. Here, a mediator says there's two parties, and somebody's going to mediate between them. There's the lawgiver, and then there's the people who were to respond, yes, we will obey. And he says, a mediator is not for the one party, it's for the two. It's for him to be the one who would make the agreement or, or kind of lock the agreement, cooperation between the two parties, so that you have an effective, enforceable pact. But the promise is not like the law. A mediator is not for one, but two, whereas God is one. And Paul links us again back in his understanding of redemptive history, back to that great passage in Deuteronomy chapter 6, I believe, that's called the Shema the classic Jewish confession. The Lord our God is one. Our, our Lord is one. The promise came to Abraham directly from God without mediation, without a mediator in between. The law, and I believe it's because the law deals specifically with human sin. And what does Isaiah say? Your sin have created a separation between you and your God so that he does not hear. And yet the law has come in as that function to help us to reveal sin, to show us sin for the sake that we would understand that our sin is transgression against a holy God. The law came through a mediator. The promise came through God who is one. Moses could not and did not mediate the promise. He was the mediator of the law. And Paul says again, they're on the same team, but they have different purposes. The law came through God, through Moses to the people. The promise came directly from God to Abraham. Paul, in his look, at least as I can understand it, his look at redemptive history, and I really do think that underlying all of this are, are trying to understand as 21st century American New Testament Christians trying to understand the, the role of the law, we kind of lose sight that what we're discussing is redemptive history, salvation history. And I believe that Paul assumes both continuity and discontinuity in that history. Because even though, we're, and we're going to get there someday, we see Paul using that grand and glorious phrase of believers being, quote, in Christ. He can tie Christianity back to Abraham and the promise that was given in Genesis. But on the other hand, he sees the Mosaic Covenant and the law as a temporary phase in history. The law was introduced 430 years after the promise. The law has an important but limited function and time frame. 
And J.L. Martin, apparently among other commentators, suggested that Paul's response to the agitators, those who were coming uh, against his teaching to the Galatians, uh, used the phrase or coined the phrase, if we could call it that, that when he was discussing this in his logic, he could simply ask, what time is it? What time of redemptive history are we talking about here? When in redemptive history was the promise given? When in redemptive history was the law given? What are their specific purposes? What are their functions? How do they function in their place, but how do they function in relationship to Christ and to the cross? John Eady in his commentary says, the function of the law was to produce profounder views of the number and heinousness of sins as preparatory to the appearance of him who came to deliver from its awful penalty, so that under the pressure of such convictions, his redemption might be welcomed as needed and as adapted blessing. He's saying it helps us, it clarifies for us what sin is all about so that we might, we might be in prepared to meet the Christ of history, to meet Christ when he comes and when he lives and he is crucified, dead, buried, and rises again. Law and grace, or if we see them as Paul does, promise and law, for the Lord our God is one. They are one purpose in God. He is not divided. He is consistent within himself. The law and the promise are on the same team, though their roles are different. The law shows us their, uh, what Paul says in Romans 3, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But the promise shows us that a gracious God had a seed. He had the seed of promise, the seed of woman to whom the promise was made and that man, women, children should be saved by that seed. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, we ask again that you would teach us, help us, to understand these things, help us to dive in, to research these things and read and study. Father, we know that Paul did not denigrate the scriptures, but he used them to show us Christ and him crucified. We know that there are many in our world who would tell us that we need to jettison many, many things from the scriptures that they just do not apply. But Father, we know that all scripture is inspired by you and given for our instruction, for learning, for our profit. And we ask, Father, that we would devote ourselves to it, that we would search the scriptures and we would be on our knees in prayer, that you would help us to see these things, to rejoice in these things, to walk in these things, and to worship you in them. We ask that you would do these things for your church, for the building up of the body of Christ. Amen. Would you please rise for the benediction from Paul in Romans 5.
And the law came in that the transgression might increase, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. That as sin reigned in death, even so grace might reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord.